After the successful release of Adventure in 1980, Tari decided to design its sequel in order to produce another hit video game. But this came with input from their marketing department. That team had a great idea. You see, Adventure was best known for a hidden room found within it. It's actually the first game to feature what we now call an easter egg. The marketing team wanted the game developers to expand on that concept and work alongside them to design a game in which the clues to solve its mystery could be found both within the game and outside of it. This concept evolved into the Sword Quest series, four planned video games through which players could compete for up to $150,000 in prizes. Today, we're going to tell you the story of the Sword Quest games. As part of their story, we'll learn more about how they were conceived, we'll take a look at the bejeweled prizes themselves, and we'll talk about how the contest went down. So stick around and join us as we take our own quest on today's trip down memory card lane. morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you happy and well. Hello and welcome to the 127th episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we'll tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, a console, a person, just something relevant to the current week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave to the world in its legacy. Today, we're going to learn all about Sword Quest, a series of video games originally produced by Atari in the 1980s. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who's currently on the quest for the Holy Grail. And phoning this one in, he's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, first of all, where the hell are you? Well, Dave, I'm currently making my way through the jungle, trying to find the spot underneath the watchtower. Uh, you know, I, I, I finally managed to get the magic whistle, and now I just need to go blow it at the right place so that I can be teleported to the realm of the Fisher King. The Fisher King, yes. Yes, indeed. So you're making good on that quest. You know, I'm doing pretty well, but I'm nervous that I might have to to fight some scary big guy. I, I just feel, you know, it's the Holy Grail. There's got to be at least one big scary bad guy for you. One really big scary bad guy. I mean, all you really have to do is sidestep him. Yeah, you got a point there. It should be pretty easy because, you know, those big guys move pretty slowly. So just poke and run. So you're pretty sure you can get the Grail? Oh, yeah, Dave, we'll have the Grail. And then you're going to display it in a museum somewhere? Most likely, uh, you know, maybe just keep it around the house to drink from every once in a blue moon, too, you know. <laughs> the Grail. Sounds good, man. I believe a lot of us have caught the Grail, so that's nice. But um, what's your plan? Well, Dave, this week has been a pretty light week for gaming, so all I have is our normal RuneScape and Rocket League. How about yourself? RuneScape, Rocket League, Melville Idol. Um, I don't think I Warzoned at all this week. Did we Warzone at all? I don't think we did. I know I did not. I believe that you might have one or two days. I think maybe one day. So let's go with Warzone. But also, I played Destiny this weekend. Oh. And I played Monster Hunter Rise this weekend. Wow. And I played golf with friends this weekend. Look at you, Dave. Really expanding the horizon. I know. It was raining on Sunday and friends had the day off. And so we um we messed around all day. So And did some golfing. Golf with friends is fun. It's one of those games you don't have to pay attention to. You ever play it before? Um, no, but I'm no stranger to golfing games, so... Well, it's a putt-putt game, for starters. No, I know, I know golf with friends very well. Yeah. I I just haven't gotten around to playing it. It's not, I have nothing against the game, I just haven't played it myself. I, I mean, know it is a lot of fun. It's fun when you're just hanging around late at night drinking, 
you know, because uh, you do stupid stuff. So, and it has like a basketball mode where like you can ca- cause your ball to jump, so the uh, the the hole becomes a net that you have to bounce into. And there's a hockey mode with a goalie and a net instead of a putt putt hole. Uh, so we were, and you can make your balls really big. We were having <laughs> we were having all sorts of fun. So. Well, those are definitely modes that I didn't know about, but uh, yeah, no, it's definitely a fun game. It sounds like you had quite the enjoyable weekend while you had that crappy weather to deal with. Yeah, very true. Very, very true. Um, but on to the topic on hand. You know, we've we've covered a lot of games in the 80s, and, you know, one of the things that was, I think... I feel more prominent back then than now. And this is even weird to say, cause there's plenty of this now, but there were lots of video game contests. Now, nowadays we have like esports and, and online, like put your name and address and everything and, um, get, you know, entered into a contest and everything. But I think in the eighties, it was a little video game contests were a little different. You know, there were, you had to, you didn't have the internet. You didn't have like the ability to to pop on and play against other people, or um, or just enter your name in a contest. Like you had to actually go out. You had to go out and do things for contests. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, but you hit it right on the head. It was just a different time in gaming. You know, I mean, now we can hop online and do all those other things, and a lot of these contests seem to be more of hey, you know, who can be the first to find this or, you know, all of these. And while they can still do that, the problem is, is that so many people post things online that everyone's going to figure it out. Very true. Well, one of the beauty parts about the golden age of arcades, which was the late 70s, early 80s, was the social aspect of it. You know, people would come together in the arcades and they would have their own you know, local tournaments and ladders and contests and play amongst themselves and stuff like that. So as we came into the late seventies, into the eighties, it's kind of no surprise that like in the early eighties, when we had the Atari and stuff like that, the companies were really trying to capture that same competitive sense. Right. But how do you do that when you're not in a social environment? Well, the answer is there was a lot of mail-in stuff. And today we're kind of going to look at some of those contests of the 80s because there's some really cool ones, including the Sword Quest one that we're going to look at today that, that kind of went at it. So, like, for instance, we had Destination Atlantis. Destination Atlantis, a company called Magic made a game called Atlantis in 1982. Destination Atlantis was a competition held by them. And basically, people were invited to take pictures of their high scores on their television screen and then mail them to the company. And those who had the highest scores were then rewarded with a copy of Atlantis 2. Now, Atlantis 2 wasn't anything out of the ordinary. It was a special edition of Atlantis that featured faster enemy ships that were worth fewer points. So basically, you played the game, got the high score, took the picture of it, and then sent it in to get a more difficult version of the game. (laughs) So they only wanted to give that game to the people they knew were good at the base version, huh? Yeah, but imagine this, if you will. Like, this, this 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 is crazy, right? So you play the game, you take a picture with your film camera, right? It's not like now when we have the cell phone and crap like that. Take a picture of the film camera. You got to take that down to the drugstore or the film lab to get that developed. You develop it. You print it. You get the one copy of it, realistically, at the time. And then you mail that copy to Imagic. And then Imagic sends you a more difficult version of the game. The reason why I started with this is it's actually a fun concept. So very, very few versions of Atlantis 2 were sent out. It's a really valuable collector's item. I didn't, 
I, well, let's see real quick because I forgot to look up what it is. Um, what it is right now. Let's see if we can find copies of Atlantis to Atlantis to Atari. What do you think they're going for? Well, oh, is there is there even any on here? That's a great question. I was going to say if there are any, I would imagine probably 150 is the starting price. Because that seems to be pretty par for the course for those games of old yesteryear. I don't see any on here, actually. Wow. Well, that's maybe because no one wants to get rid of it. Maybe. According to Wikipedia, uh, 10 years ago... Oh, oh, I take that back. I've used it in number two, and I needed to use the II. There is one copy of Atlantis 2 on ebay right now how much absolutely one copy and it doesn't even look like atlantis 2 to me but maybe i don't know what i'm looking for um it is twenty three thousand dollars no it was just a small amount off (laughs) i don't think it's atlantis 2 anyway so really valuable there's another fun one that I like called Name This Game and Win 10K. <laughs> well, um, what, th- you just had to come up with a name for the game or? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So the story behind this game is that they made a game and it was a game called like treasures of the deep. And basically they offered it to Parker brothers who owned the license for jaws at the time. Cause it was going to be like a jaws game. That was what it was designed after. But in the midst of it, Parker brothers lost the license for jaws and they didn't quite know what to do with it. So that's what they turned it into name this game and win 10 K. That's kind of awesome. Actually. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Isn't that weird? That's funny. Uh, Nobody won because the company that offered it, US Games, who had picked up that game after Parker Brothers lost the license and then they kind of sold off the game. Uh, It was picked up by US Games and they were going to call it Guardians of Treasure. And they decided to do this contest because they didn't really know what to name it. But before the contest was completed, US Games went bankrupt. Well, damn. There was a 1983 racing game called Enduro, a cool Activision game. In 1983, Activision ran the Enduro race for which is sweepstakes. Now get this. The grand prize for the sweepstakes was a Datsun 280ZX pace car. What? And a trip trip for two to Caesars Palace Grand Prix weekend. Jesus. Second place was a Datsun 200SX hatchback SL. Third prize was a trip for two to the Grand Prix weekend. But you could also win one of 50 radio-controlled cars. People could win Grand Prix video game cartridges. Um, This was probably like a mail-in sweepstakes. Uh, There were 2,000 racing posters. They also passed out. So That is a hell of a sweepstakes. Holy damn. Yeah, that one's kind of cool. They based that one. That was more like not the game itself was a sweepstakes, but more of a marketing campaign around the release of a game. But Activision actually did something else that was really cool. So there was a there was a series of games or things rather you could earn patches uh, that Activision would mail to you and contestants could get the patches by photographing specific high scores on their TV and mailing it in for specific games. So like, for instance, a pitfall. We know pitfall, right? Yep. Kind of sort of fall in a pit. You fall in a pit. (laughs) Uh, if you could send them a picture of you with a score of 20,000 points or higher, you got an, an Activision Explorers Club patch sent to you. Hmm. And there, there were a lot of these. Uh, Grand Prix, since we just talked about a Grand Prix game, there were that was a lap. So if you could pick game two on the Atari, you know how you had the switch for different difficulties? Oh yeah, yep, I remember. So so if you could do game two in a minute or less, you could get a Grand Prix patch, for instance. This is a good one. There was a game called Freeway. Basically, you controlled chickens. It was like Frogger, 
but you had to run across with chickens to get to the other side. So if you score 20 points or more on two specific levels and sent it in, Activision would send you a patch that said saved a chicken. It was a picture of a chicken, like a stylized chicken running across the, across the patch. So, so the real reason the chicken crossed the road was so that the per- the kid could get their patch. Yes. Well, at least we finally answered that age-old question, huh, Dave? Yeah. There were a lot of fun ones, like Chopper Command had one called where the patch said Chopper Commandos. A game called Crackpots was a picture of like a, a flower pot broken on the ground. There was different ones for the game Decathlon, like a gold, a silver, and a bronze patch, depending on your high score. And Duro actually did have one where if you could survive five in-game days, you got one that said Roadbusters that was stylized. That one's fun. If you could actually show that you could beat the computer, the difficult computer on ice hockey, they sent you a patch that said All-Star Hockey Team. The game Kaboom would send you a patch that said Activision's Bucket Brigade. Nice. (laughs) That's funny. Keystone Capers, a game I love would send you a bad shape patch that was that one was the actual billy club oink had a like the three little pigs on it and it said oinkers on it nice <laughs> pitfall 2 said cliffhangers and now these are cool patches they're not just they don't just say cliffhangers like a pit it's a picture of a guy hanging off the cliff and it says cliffhangers pressure cooker had a picture of a cook on it and it's just short order squad the no plaque pack had one for plaque attack had one that said the no plaque pack private eye the game could send you one that said super sleuth there was just a lot of fun a lot of fun ones i'll post some of them on our website also on our discord i think i'm gonna start posting a few pictures here and there if you guys want to check them out on our discord um give you kind of a, a reason to come say hi every so often so we'll we'll pop a few of these patches on our discord and link to so come check us out if you don't know how to get to our Discord, visit our website, www.memorycardlane.com. There were a couple other, like, they did advertisements with games, like the, the G.I. Joe Cobra Strike game that came out for the Atari 2600. Parker Brothers held a contest where you could win a Black Cobra cap by reaching the 16th level of the game and snapping a picture and sending it into them. Also, Wizards of War. There was a game, an arcade game, that got ported over to everything called Wizards of War, and when they first ported it over, there was a contest that offered a cash prize to the first person to complete the game. That could, you know, so it was a race. People could, could first person to snap that picture and get it in won a cash prize. So there was all these fun ways, basically, in which, you know, the the video game companies were trying to get people to to buy their games to play their games. Because how cool is it to be able to like? I want to get the high score and collect all these patches that gives you an incentive to buy all these different games. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of similar to back in the day when we used to play Xbox games and beat them exclusively to get the trophies. Gamer yes, score. I wa- Sorry. Yeah, trophies well, for PlayStation gamer score achievements. Yeah. Achievement <clears throat> gamer score. And then, then they became achievements. So um, I agree. I think it's the same concept. I was literally thinking the same thing as it was coming out of my mouth, but there was Rob one gaming contest to beat them all Ooh, what's that dave it was super freaking cool and that is the topic for today sword quest but i gotta back up for a second so three four weeks ago we did an episode on adventure very influential action adventure game released for atari in early 1980 do you you remember it yes i remember it all right a lot of innovation but adventure was known for one specific thing which was what oh i mean there were dragons there were keys there were difficulties that changed the last one was randomized yeah you do remember it um i'm not sure which one of those is what you're referring to like i don't i mean those at the time i feel all that was innovative but i can't think of exactly what you're looking for it's what it's famous for. Um, being the first RPG. Nope. It was a hidden room. Oh, the Easter eggs. That's right. The Easter egg. Yeah. So adventure 
for those of you who don't know, was the first game to have an Easter egg. It was literally the game by which the term was coined. Now, I would encourage you to go back to, I think, episode 124. I don't know. It was three or four weeks ago to vi visit the home story. But I'll give you a brief rundown. So, at the time, Atari was owned by Warner Communications. Warner Communications was running it very much like a business. Didn't get along with the, the laid-back California programming culture. And so, there were some things that they did. One of those things was that they refused to put any programmer's name on their game. So there's a couple of reasons for this. One, they didn't want any programmer to get notoriety for their head to grow too big because then they could demand better wages by being like, you need me. I have all the brand recognition. Pay me, pay me my worth. And the other reason was that if, a, if first of all, they don't want to pay them. And secondly, if they do have that brand notoriety, then another company can come along and say, hey, we're going to pay you more, come work for us, and then they would lose good programmers as well. So the reason's always money, but these corporate bigwigs at Warner Communications, they just, they didn't want to give their programmers any recognition. So a guy named Warren Robinette made Adventure, he's a, the programmer, and when he finished his game, when he finished Adventure, he still had a little bit of memory left. And so what he decided to do with that memory was he coded a secret into the game. It was a single gray pixel. And if players would grab that pixel and they dragged it to a specific area, it would open up a wall and it would unlock a hidden room, basically. And inside the room was the message, really simple, created by Warren Robinette. Now, he told nobody, absolutely nobody. So the game was programmed, finished, completed, printed on a gajillion cartridges, and sent out into the world. And nobody knew that this hidden room was in there until about a month after its release, when a 15-year-old kid wrote Atari that was like, hey, I love your games. They're the best thing ever. P.S. I found this weird room. Can you comment on this? And then just word got out that there was this room. Right? Now, the big wigs were not very happy. They, they weren't happy. You know, this was against what they wanted. And so they sat down and they're like, hey. They asked, first of all, they asked other programs to take it out. But the other programs were like, nah, I ain't going to do that. And so they debated just like reprinting the game kind of sort of with other help taking it out, reprinting the game after they found someone that would take it out, but it was expensive to reprint the game to recode the chips that they based the master chips, basically that they coded all the cartridges off of. It was going to be $10,000 in 1980. And that was, that's a lot of money in $1980 to his credit, the director of game development at Atari at the time, Steve Wright, well, actually stood up for the practice of, of coding hidden things into games. He believed in and commented to the notion that hidden things in games like Warren Robinette's room actually gave gamers an incentive to play the games because when they hear about the hidden things, hey, that's pretty cool. I want to find that myself. Right? Right. It's like when we were young and we would get those code books. I know you got those for the PlayStation, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, the cheat code books. The cheat code books. And you just Actually, you wanted to do it. A couple to, of them. <laughs> I mean, you wanted to do that to see the cheat codes. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Playing Grand Theft Auto with some of the cheat codes enabled is one of my favorite things, even though later learning on that it corrupted the entire save file. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can remember other earlier versions of that. Like, you know, we talked about this, but you know, in my time, which is more NES era, like Metroid, when word started to get out that you at the end of Metroid, spoiler alert, sorry, 35 years um, at the end of Metroid, if you beat it under a certain time, Metroid would be pictured without her armor. And it was a big deal because no one knew it was actually a her until that was out. When word got out that that was a thing, suddenly everybody wanted to play Metroid. So these were things that you know were recognized as as hidden in games and so steve wright was like hey this is actually pretty cool it's kind of like finding easter eggs hidden on easter morning and in saying that he coined the term easter egg and that became 
a regular practice in video games, Atari games, and then video games, period. Adventure was a very successful game for Atari. It sold over a million copies in the long run, and no doubt some of that success, like I said, was due to people hearing about the Easter egg and wanting to find out for themselves. So it should come as no surprise that Atari was thinking about making a sequel to Adventure pretty much after they released it and it and it hit the ground running. You know, every video game company is like that. You know what I mean, Rob? Once they get success, it's like, all right, time to time to make a sequel. No, absolutely. I mean, it's all it's all about money, you know, but it's all about money. I'm not going to complain because a lot of the times the sequels are even better than the beginning. <laughs> Very true. This time, though, the marketing gurus, geniuses at Atari, they wanted to take that Easter egg concept and build upon it. So they came up with an idea for a video game or what ended up being a series of video games where players would have to find the clues to solve specific puzzles both in the game and in its physical materials. At first, the concept was kind of like, hey, we're going to have things in the game, and you'll have to reference the instruction book to figure out the puzzles in the game, and then that kind of expanded into something bigger as they fleshed that idea out. So at the time, Atari's parent company, like I said, was Warner Communications, and Warner happened to own a few other companies that these marketing guys were like, hey, can we capitalize on the fact that we also own these guys and can we bring them all together to do something really special? Now, the these companies that they brought in, one was American comic book publisher DC Comics. We know DC, pretty famous Batman, for instance, right? Yeah, Superman, Green Lantern. and That's it. Yeah. Warner owned DC Comics at the time. And then secondly, they also owned the Franklin Mint. Don't they make money? No. Franklin Mint, well, yes. But they make, they don't make, like, U.S. money. They make, like, commemorative coins. You know, like... Yeah, the Star Wars coins, or... Correct. I mean, they're known for making other fancy things, but that's what they're probably best known for, is making, like, hey, we're making an old president's coin collection, or, or, hey... We're the ones for twenty nine ninety five. Call us now, and we'll send you the Super Bowl fifty two commemorative coin, or you know what I mean. They they make all that kind of stuff, right? So the idea the idea was we'll bring in DC Comics to make, I mean, what ended up being comic books, and we'll bring in the Franklin Mint to do something cool, and we'll put it all together to come up with something new. Now they asked a game designer called Todd Fry to write write the game to be the game designer. Up until that point, Todd's most notable work was the Atari 2600 port of Pac-Man, which he actually completed earlier in night, which was released early in 1982. For those of you who don't know it, we kind of talked about it in our Pac-Man episode, but the port of Pac-Man is probably one of the most infamous ports in history, very much so in these early gaming days. It was insanely popular, popular for starters and sold 12 million copies. In fact, the port of Pac-Man is the single best-selling cartridge on the Atari 2600. However, however, it was an awful port that is known for not being Pac-Man because they did not try to make it match the arcade version of Pac-Man. Care to elaborate on that? Yeah, so for instance, it's got different color schemes. It doesn't have a black background. I think it's got a blue background. And he couldn't quite figure out how to code the flickering of the ghost right. So it's very much known for a weird flickering concept that just people freaking hate. Hmm. So it's just a piece of crap. I know we talked about it before. We did... So this game is one of the games cited alongside E.T. for basically causing the video game crash in 1983. 
Uh, now, we covered this back in episode 67. So, again, go check out our website, www.memorycardlane.com, to go learn about it. But what E.T. and Pac-Man and other ports like this did, really poor ports and poor games, is people were excited for these games. And so they went and they bought them in mass, right? This game sold 12 million copies, but it was crap. So 12 million people bought a crap game and suddenly people were gun-shy to continue buying games. You can't have your best-selling titles be your worst titles. It doesn't work that way. And this this is one of the reasons. There are other reasons that they all come together, and we talked about all of them, all of them but this is one of the reasons. These really popular, poor games, you know, helped basically reduce consumer confidence. People were not interested in buying games because suddenly they didn't know if the next one was going to be crap. And that's one of the things that led to the video game crash. But this is before the, we're, we're, his, his, you know, we didn't know that we were going into a crash now. So he made the game, released it, or was getting ready to release it. But as when he was done and it got sent to do Atari things, they asked him to work on this game here. So we have Todd Fry and he's asked to design the sequel for Adventure. So Fry and the marketers come up with this grandiose idea to turn the sequel into a whole series that involved a contest in which players could win actual prizes. So, of course, they reach out to DC Comics and say, hey, we want to create comic books and include comic books with this game to help with this contest. Inside these comic books would be the clues that would help gamers solve the mysteries that they would have to find in the game itself. The Franklin Mint was brought in and they were asked to create prizes that could be won. These prizes were a series of jeweled treasures that would actually be worth something in the real world. Legitimate 18 karat gold diamonds, like jewels, like, like cool things. Holy damn. And collectively, this team designed a whole series of games, four in fact, one for each of the four elements around this contest. They become the Sword Quest series. And the four games are Sword Quest Earthworld, Sword Quest Fireworld, Waterworld, and Airworld. Now, each of these games had its own specific prize that could be won. The winner of the Earthworld contest, the first game, they could win what's called the Talesman of Penultimate Truth which was a solid gold pendant inlaid with 12 diamonds, the birthstones of each of the 12 zodiacs, and a miniature white gold sword that was inlaid on top of the pendant. God damn, that's pretty fancy. Oh, they're cool. You should see pictures of it. Again, I'll post them on our Discord. And, of course, you can find show notes to all this stuff on our website. But they're pretty cool. The winner of Fireworld could win something called the Chalice of Light. Now, one article I found online, this is hilarious. I had to keep it. They described it as a fantasy-styled pimp cup made of gold and platinum, studded with diamonds, rubies, sapphires, and pearls. So basically, um, the, uh, the the cup that Snoop Dogg used to drink out of. Basically. Now, the Atari advertisement doesn't refer to it as a pimp cup. They call it a gorgeous goblet. But it's definitely still studded with all the fun stuff. The winner of Waterworld could win the Crown of Life, which was described as a golden crown that was encrusted with diamonds, rubies, sapphires, green tourmalines, and aquamarines. Pretty freaking cool stuff that stuff that they're putting together. Rob, take a look at the picture I just sent you. Wow. Holy now the winner Christ. of the last game, Airworld, would be eligible to win the Philosopher's Stone. Now, the Philosopher's Stone was a large piece of white jade encased in an 18-karat gold box studded with emeralds, rubies, diamonds, and citrines. And lastly, lastly, there would be one final contest in which they brought all four of the winners together who could compete for the ultimate prize, which was called the Sword of Ultimate Sorcery, which is advertised as an incredible jewel-encrusted sword with an 18 karat gold handle, a gleaming silver blade that blazes with diamonds, emeralds, rubies, and sapphires. 
Now, in the advertisement for this ga- these games in this contest, each of the individual game prizes, the Talisman of Penultimate Truth, Chalice of Light, Crown of Light, and Philosopher's Stone, are advertised as being worth $25,000, while the Sword of Ultimate Sorcery was advertised at being fifty worth $50,000. So all in all, the contest enticed gamers with the notion of winning up to our, our, you know, winning some of a basically $150,000 worth of prizes that were available just for playing a video game. Now that's kind of crazy. I know that nowadays we have esport tournaments where people can win a million dollars and stuff like that. But in 1980, we had none of that. So the notion of a $150,000 prize contest around a video game was just, I mean, it, it was nuts, you know? Atari could do it at the time. You know, they were selling 12 million copies of Pac-Man and Ataris were flying off the shelves. And so they were the, they were the big man on campus. They had all the money, the resources, the notoriety to make a contest like this. And so they put out this advertisement and they introduced the sword, sword, sword quest series to the world. And those are some pretty badass looking prizes. Yeah, I I agree. Those things look pretty freaking awesome. Um, man, <clears throat> I do wish that the sword itself was shown a little more, but I mean, just the hilt itself still is a gorgeous example. I mean, it's yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar, check these out because these are freaking gorgeous pieces. I'll cover it, but we have pictures of a few of them like like those are the 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 like drawn like here's the contest we do have pictures of some of the real one and they're not terribly far off of what was advertised they're not terribly far off of what was advertised at all and so that's kind of cool actually kind of cool dave sword quest story for the series is told through both the games and the comic books that come with the games you know each of the games came with one issue one of the comic books so there were four of them and the basis is the series follows a pair of twins their names are tara tara and tor and they have basically your really typical uh this is like a role-playing like it's a sequel to adventure an adventure was, you know, pick up the sword, slay dragons. So it's that fantasy genre. And this was a, a sequel, you know, a, a spiritual sequel to it. So this is really a fantasy typical origin, origin story. Uh, the parents of the twins were slain by guards of the king. The king's name is Tyrannus, King Tyrannus. And he slayed the parents because he was prompted by a prophecy foretold by his wizard, whose name is Conjuro. And the prophecy simply stated that the twins would slay Tyrannus one day. So the twins are sent away, hidden in some village somewhere. They're raised as commoners elsewhere, away from Tyrannus, to avoid them being slain by the king. And they go on to live their lives. You know, they are commoners in nowhere. They have no concept of what they came from. Their parents, original parents, are murdered. You know, but um, they live in this village. And... As village riffraff, they find themselves into situations. Now, one day they're going to Conjuro's keep, the wizard's keep, to steal things, and in doing so, they accidentally reveal their true identities as these twins they've been searching for to the wizard. Now, the wizard summons a demon to kill them, and they figure out that the demon is attracted to a jewel that they stole, so they smash it and escape. And they're approached by two of the king's previous advisors. And the king, the advisors, like the old advisors, are tired of the king and his tyranny. King Tyrannus. Get it, Rob? Get it? Get it? Uh, no, Dave. Can you please explain it to me? Yeah, I'm not going to that. I'm not a literary genius here. I know. So these advisors tell him everything. They tell him about the prophecy, that they're the ones that are going to kill the kill the tyrannical king. And they tell them that the way they can do it is by finding artifacts. Uh, in this one, they're looking for the Sword of Ultimate Sorcery. That's how they can kill Tyrannus. But in order to find the sword, they also need to pick up the Talisman of Penultimate Truth along the way. So the penul- Talisman of Penultimate Truth was the prize that one could win for playing Earthworld. 
And so this is how they integrated those actual real world prizes into the game. So they thought they get the story laid out to them. Hey, you got to go seek these out so you can kill the king because he's going to kill you anyways if you don't. So it's it's kill or be killed. And they get transported to Earthworld to seek them out. Now, Earthworld is designed around the Western Zodiac. Players have to maneuver or move around a series of rooms, each of which corresponded to a different Zodiac sign. Now, as it pertained to winning the contest, contest, players would have to place specific items in each room to uncover numeric clues, and those numeric clues would point to specific words in the comic book. So, one example I found online, players would have to leave the grappling hook in the cancer room and a rope in the Leo room. And this would reveal the number clue 25 25 and 6. Those are the numbers. So if players checked page 25, panel 6 in the comic book, they would find the word the, T-H-E, hidden in the background of the comic panel. Okay, Dave. Now the comic would include, in this method, 10 different hidden words that were scattered throughout the comic. But the contest form that players had to send in only called for five words. In order to narrow it down to five words, there was a clue to this. And that clue was found in the beginning of the comic book. And there were two words in the beginning of the comic book that were colored purple and made to stand out from the rest of the words. And those two words were prime and number. So the five words that you were supposed to turn in in the context form were only the words that were featured on prime numbered pages. Mm. Now these words for Earthworld were Quest and Tower Talisman Found. And people who submitted these words were entered into context to win the prize. Now Earthworld sold about 50,000 copies and about 55,000 people ended up submitting answers back to Atari. And of those 5,000 people, only eight people actually sent the correct five words into Atari. So all eight people were invited to Atari headquarters in California to a tournament to compete to win the prize. Once they got to the Atari headquarters in California, they were given a specially programmed version of Earthworld that they had to complete in under 90 minutes. Now, in just under 46 minutes, this special version of the game was completed by a man named Stephen Bell. He was a 20-year-old man from Detroit, Michigan. And in doing so, in being the fastest person to complete the game, he won the Talisman of Penultimate Truth. Hell yeah, repping the D. I know. So by the time this context had finished, the next game in the series, Fireworld, had already been out for about three months and people were already at it again. Now, as the story goes, the twins fight their way through Earthworld and the Zodiac rooms. They find their way to the central chamber where the Sword of Ultimate Sorcery and the Talisman are kept. But when they finally reach the artifacts, the sword burns a hole through the altar and this opens up the way to Fireworld. So they grab the Talisman and they go to Fireworld. So in Fireworld, the twins split up. Uh, Tor uses the Talisman. The Talisman summons a guy named Mentor. I mean, this is real good stuff here, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and Mentor tells them what the next artifact is going to be, which is the Chalice of Light. So they basically set off on a quest to find the Chalice. Now, Fireworld's layout was based on the Tree of Life from the Kabbalah, and this context was no different from Earthworld. Players put specific items in the specific rooms. There were 10 words, more than what was needed. This time, the clue to look out for was the word seven, which is written in a different font, in the in the comics introduction so the the concept was only words that were found on pages that added up to the number seven were important so for instance page 16 one plus six equals seven had hidden the word leads right wow so this time the winning phrase was leads to chalice power abounds now by now Word had gotten out that someone actually won a talisman. So there were many, many, many more people participating in the context. You know, now that they know it's real and there's actually things to be won. I mean, this is what Atari wanted. This is how they were going to get people to buy these games, you know? Right. So many, many, many more people turn in words. Of them, 
73 people turned in the correct phrase this time. And Atari whittled that number down to 50 people by asking them all to write an essay about what they liked about the game. Now, those 50 people, their favorite essays, you know, I really like the game because were, of course, invited to Atari headquarters and they were asked to beat a specially programmed version of Fireworld in record time. And this was done by Michael Rideout from Aiken, South Carolina, who finished it in 50 minutes. So Rideout was awarded the Pimp Cup, the Chalice of Light. Now came the crash, 1983, video game crash that we had been talking about. And everyone started to pull back, including Atari. Because the money was gone. People weren't buying video games, you know? Right. So Waterworld didn't get a big release. Not like Fireworld and Earthworld. In fact, the third game in the contest, Contest Waterworld, was only made available to Atari Club members who mailed away for the game starting in February of 1984. So as the story goes, the twins find the chalice, and it grows large enough to swallow the twins, and, and in doing so, transports them to Waterworld. Upon reaching Waterworld, they become separated. One of them travels to a ship made of ice, meets Captain Frost, who wants to find, quote-unquote, the crown of life. The other one goes to an undersea kingdom, uh, meets the queen, who also wants to find the crown of life, and somehow they end up in a war with one another, um, and come together, realize what, you know, come together, realize they're all searching for the same thing. The twins are looking for it. So they basically, you know, get to where they need, find the sword of ultimate sorcery, find, um, the crown of life, sword of ultimate sorcery transports them to air world where they would be kind of now, cause we're going to be in the last game of the series. They're going to have to face off against the King and the wizard in the last game of the series. Right. So that kind of sets the showdown for the last game. Now, Waterworld was a much smaller map. It was based on the seven spiritual chakras made popular by New Age beliefs. So there were only eight rooms to this game. And it was the same concept. Find the words, find the gimmick. This time the words to find are hastened towards revealed crown. But unfortunately, for all parties involved, everyone who bought the game and who was competing... The Sword Quest series and context were abruptly canceled in the summer of 1984. What had happened was the video game crash, like I said, happened and the whole industry just bottomed out. Right. We've talked about it before. Yes, indeed. So by so by middle of 1984, Atari was in trouble and cheap. It was being sold for pennies on the dollar. So it was bought out for it was bought out by a really infamous gaming CEO called Jack Tramiel for barely anything. And he basically bought it and then either sold or reassigned most of Atari's gaming divisions to other things. Now, I'm not going to go into it more than that because I'd really like to do an Atari history episode someday. But what you need to know is in the chaos of this guy buying it and basically like piecing atari out to the lowest bidder they just canceled the entire sword quest thing now according to sources on the internet atari was legally obligated to hold the Waterworld contest because they already released the game so what they did is they secretly held a non-public contest for 10 people who turned in the correct phrase and then awarded the crown to one of them now this contest was never publicized the winner of the crown has never come forward you know, we know who the other two are, but the crown is just somewhere out there. And because Atari had kind of started with this notion that all four winners could come and compete for the ultimate prize, the first two winners, Bell and Rideout, um, because they could, there was going to be no final sort of sorcery contest, they were basically given $15,000, an Atari 7800, and a pat on the head because there was never going to be a contest for the sort of ultimate sorcery. Well, boo on that, but I mean, hey, at least they still got some pretty cool stuff out of it. They did. Now, the last game in the series, Airworld, was never made and released to the public. At least not back in the 80s. It was never released to the public until November of 2022, Rob. Uh, say what, Dave? Like three months ago was when Airworld was finally released. I had no idea. Didn't hear about it. 
So back in November, Atari turned 50 years old, and as part of their 50th anniversary celebration, they released a gaming anthology called Atari 50. Now, Atari 50 is a game slash interactive documentary of Atari's 50 years. It includes interviews from Atari employees, archival footage, and emulated games from the company's catalog. In fact, it has 103 games that you can play on it. Now, these are games from all over Atari's timeline. There are some of their early arcade games, and this goes all the way through their last system, the Atari Jaguar. Um, A lot of these games we know, Rob. There's games like Asteroids, Missile Command, Centipede, Yars Revenge, Adventure is on there. This is just the absolute classic upon classic Atari video game library. Yeah, sounds like a lot of the games I'm actually familiar with and have played. I know. Wow. So... Among those classic emulated games are the whole Sword Quest series, these three that we've talked about, Earthworld, Fireworld, and Waterworld. But also included in the 103 games were six new games that were specifically made for this collection. Now, these six games are kind of cool. One's called Haunted Houses, which is a 3D remake of a popular Atari game called Haunted House. Um, there is Neo Breakout, which is a modern remake of Breakout, which was another popular game of theirs. Uh, they took Tank, a popular Atari game, and made it a four-person game and called it Quadra Tank. Atari had a digital handheld, like, you know, digital handheld game called Touch Me. And they turned that into an actual video game. And then Yars Revenge, which was a really popular Atari game, got an enhanced modern version. And then they made this really cool, like, vector tribute called vctrscrt basically a vector game inspired by old school vector games that's five and the last one was sword quest airworld so 50 years later we finally get airworld which you can now play as part of the atari 50 collection the conclusion of this series sorry i know it just came out but spoilers it ends exactly how you expected to the twins battle the bad guys and win but it's super cool that here 50 years later not quite 50 years. 50 years is when Atari started, but let's say 30 some years later. Actually, I, I can tell you exactly how it is because the games are as old as I am. Th- almost 39 years later, you finally get a conclusion to a series that just kind of ended abruptly in the 80s, you know? Wow. Quite the history on that. Quite the history of that. Now, one of the more interesting parts about this is the fate of the prizes. It has kind of become an urban legend in the gaming community since the Sword Quest series was canceled. Of the five treasures that they made, the chalice is still in possession of its winner, Michael Rideout. That was verified as recently as 2017. Apparently he has it stored in a safe deposit box. The other guy who won the talisman, the Detroit guy, um, Bell, apparently he and Rideout were friends. They stayed in contact for some time. At some point, Bell had the talisman, at least the 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 gold part, melted down for its value. Uh, he kept the small sword, the diamonds, and the birthstones, but he got about $15,000 off the gold disc part and used it towards school, if I'm not mistaken. We don't know anything about the crown. Like I said, they had a secret contest and and didn't advertise it, didn't advertise who won it, so no one quite knows where the crown is. And... No one knows at all, since they were never part of a contest, what happened to the Philosopher's Stone or the Sword of Ultimate Truth. Now, there's some urban legend, like some theories. One of the most popular ones is that Jack Tramiel, who was just really not popular because he basically bought Atari and dismantled it. He kept the prizes for himself. This is kind of like based on apparently someone saw a sword mounted on the mantle in his house uh, and started and, and, and got out. But it's commonly believed by people who are a little more sensible that that was a family heirloom and probably not the sword of ultimate truth. It's kind of funny. It'd be kind of funny as, as much as I don't like this dude. It'd be funny if he took the sword and put it on like, haha, I got Atari and here's what I got out of it. You know, you know, that would be pretty funny, though. I do have to say that we all know what happened to the Philosopher's Stone. We do. Yeah, we do. That damn Harry Potter guy. That damn Harry Potter and Voldemort guys. So we don't know what happened to the stone. We don't know what happened to the sword. What's most commonly thought is that um, it probably stayed with the Franklin Mint. 
and Franklin Mint was sold off from Warner Brothers in a couple years later. They sold it off and probably it stored in a warehouse sometime and was eventually melted down to its base components to be reused elsewhere. But what we got out of it was a really cool series in which fantasy prizes, fantasy, like the kind of stuff that you would typically only pick up at fantasy games, was actually made by the Franklin Mint and awarded to people in real life contests here in the 80s. And that is the story of Sword Quest. That is one hell of a story. It's cool, isn't it? It's no, it's absolutely awesome. I mean, like you said, we have esports things now, tournaments per se, but to have a contest like that, we just we don't really see that anymore. And it's kind of no, I mean, we do. I mean, they'll not and we don't. They'll give like, hey, have this collector's edition of the game or stuff like that. But no one's making like twenty five thousand dollar pimp cups and passing them out to people, you know, but that's fun. That is very much fun you know and it all started because some marketing gurus at atari wanted to make a sequel to adventure now adventure like i said was a very influential game very innovative if you want to learn more about its story you can visit our website at www.memorycardlane.com also on our website we have our show notes our biographies a list of upcoming episodes on a calendar and you can find links to our discord and our social media links. I can be found on various platforms as David is wrong. Rob, where can the people find you these days? Shit, my bad. Uh, well, Dave, I can be found on twitch.tv forward slash F-A-T-B-O-I-R-I-P-Z. Awesome. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Well, every week we tell you a story about one thing relevant to the current week in gaming history. And in doing so, we hope to teach you something new about it. What it took from the world as its inspiration, or possibly what it gave back to the world as its legacy. Today, we learned all about video game contests of the 80s, including the coolest one, the Sword Quest series. One of the best parts about teaching or learning, uh, telling you these stories day in and day out, is that in telling you these stories, we learn things too. And as part of our commitment to that whole teaching learning process, we like to go round table and talk about our biggest takeaways. So Rob, what did you learn today? What was your favorite part? Honestly, Dave, I think for me, it's the contest. It's something we don't have today. It's very unique. And, you know, being that I am a fan of puzzles, this it, the contest itself was at its core, a big puzzle. You solve the puzzle and you have a chance to win prizes and, and get known and, that's a pretty freaking cool concept. Like, yeah, we have records now for competitive games. Like you, you place top number one in the thing, or if it's like a skill based game, like, I mean, dating myself on this one, but guitar hero, I'm sure they have more modern. Well, beat saber is a more modern kind of style for that. People who can get high scores in that, but it's nothing like that. You know, it's, it's all skill based. It's not, Hey, you know, you have to stop, think, pay attention, look for clues, um, just do some good old fashioned sleuthing. I think that that's really creative. It was a f- amazing marketing ploy, although in the beginning it didn't uh, seem to be too hot. But by the game two, when people realized, hey, this isn't just some BS that they're spewing. This is actually going on. Um, I mean, that's that's freaking awesome, man. It's just such a cool concept. And I wish that it was something that still happened now. I agree. I do. So what about you? What's what's your big takeaway? I mean, I didn't know this even existed before I stumbled on it. I think that this whole concept of taking fantasy artifacts and making them. I mean, we do it all the time now, right? You have your favorite. I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, right? And you can go and you can buy the swords from Lord of the Rings at replica stores pretty easily. That really wasn't as much a thing. And the fact that they took these artifacts and turned them into like real, like real artifacts, like this dude's holding an 18 karat gold cup in his hands in one of the pictures. Like how freaking cool is that to have like your fantasy artifacts brought to life and you can compete for them in a video game. I I just think it's really cool actually. So this whole story was neat. Also really liked the fact that I found a game called, Name this game and win 10k. So, yeah, that's pretty awesome. I can't say I've ever heard of that one. 
So that's all pretty cool. That's all pretty cool. Uh, Sword Quest is a is a cool one. That was a weird story that I'm sure I didn't know about. And I'm 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 gonna go on a limb here and say many of you listening had probably never heard of Sword Quest either. And I hope I hope we entertained you for an hour with it. But with that being said, I think we're gonna take it out of here. But before I do so and move on to next week, Rob, what would you like to add to today's episode? Well, Dave, as always, I do just want to take one quick moment to say thank you to everyone for listening. It means the world to us. We do this week in, week out, and we still love doing it, and we just hope that you love listening. And for those of you who reach out and tell us how you feel about the show, we appreciate you. And for those that don't, we appreciate you as well. Just glad to know you're out there listening and enjoying the history from Dave and the quirky little remarks from Rob. The peanut gallery. The peanut gallery. Awesome. Well, next week, Rob, we're going to learn all about something called Project Noah. It was first a proposal for Final Fantasy VII. It was later on thought to be a sequel to Chrono Trigger. But when it was finally released in 1998, Xenogears was neither. As part of its story, we're going to look at the development of Xenogears, the people who created it, and we're going to spend some time talking about the game itself. Uh, do you have any familiarity with Xenogears, Rob? I've heard of it. I've seen some gameplay. have not played it myself. So uh, there's definitely going to be a lot for me to learn. It's weird. It's very philosophical, very religious. It has a lot of... It's a, it's a, it's a deep, deep game, honestly. It's, it's a weird one. And we're going to dive all into it. So stick around and join us as we have our own little existential crisis on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Skibbidim dap 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 doo doo.